0: This is the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. Lately, we have seen several events that have resulted in uh, production of numerous injuries uh, very rapidly. We're talking about the bridge collapse in Minnesota, uh, the mine uh, collapse in Utah, as well as another mine collapse in China. Unique to these types of mechanisms is their ability to produce an injury pattern that's not commonly seen in uh, daily trauma care, but under uh, situations of building collapses, mine collapses, and earthquakes, it's a reasonably common mechanism of injury, and that's the crush injury. Crush injuries are capable of producing uh, something obviously called crush syndrome, and this is also known as traumatic rhabdomyolysis. It's a clinical entity characterized by renal failure and death after severe muscle trauma. Crush syndrome was first described in World War I, when German soldiers rescued from collapsed trenches, and then again in World War II in patients of the London Blitz. In World War II, crush syndrome had a mortality rate in excess of 90%, but during the Korean War, mortality rate was reduced to 84%, but after the advent of hemodialysis, mortality rate was decreased to 53%. In the Vietnam War, the mortality rate was approximately the same at 50%. Now, myself, I'm trained and practice as a trauma surgeon and burn surgeon. And when we think about mass casualty preparation, certainly uh, we uh, commonly don't think about what is the role of having uh, uh, dialysis and nephrologists as part of our emergency response teams. But hopefully I want to introduce to you uh, what is this... uh, crush syndrome and and hopefully illustrate to you the necessity of when you're doing disaster planning for something like a building collapse or an earthquake that you really dial in uh, the role of the nephrology teams and hemodialysis teams uh, in uh, saving lives. We know that with previous earthquakes, mass casualties have produced uh, injuries requiring basically a um, a rapid response uh, on a significant scale of um, uh, people trained in uh, nephrology and uh, dialysis. In 1988, a uh, 6.9 uh, earthquake in Armenia killed 25,000 people. In the aftermath of that, nearly 600 cases of acute renal failure developed, which in essence created a second catastrophe subsequently called the renal disaster. And this was described by Solos and colleagues at Kidney International in 1993. One of the core references that I'm using for this discussion is the New England Journal of Medicine. March 9, 2006. article uh, titled, Management of Crush-Related Injuries After Disasters. Since that 1988 Armenian earthquake, at least eight other mass disasters have occurred that have involved numerous casualties or the need for dialysis, or both, as a result of crush injuries. Like I said, in Armenia, there were 25,000 deaths with 600 patients uh, with crush injuries, uh, roughly 225 to 385 patients required dialysis. In 1999, there was an earthquake in northern Iran, 40,000 people were dead. The um, numbers of patients with crush syndrome were difficult to tabulate, but 156 patients required dialysis. Kobe, Japan, 1995, 5,000 people dead from the earthquake there. 372 patients were diagnosed with crush syndrome, 123 of those required dialysis. The Marmara region of Turkey in 1999, 17,000 people dead. 639 patients with crush injuries, 477 people required acute dialysis. Chi Chi Taiwan, 1999, 2,400 injured, excuse me, 2,400 dead, 5, 52 with crush injuries, 32 people requiring crush syndrome. Again, you can look at India earthquake there, 20,000 dead, more crush syndromes. Algeria, 2,200 dead, more crush syndromes. Bomb Iran in 2003, 26,000 dead, 124 people with acute crush syndrome, 96 people needing acute dialysis. Kashmir, Pakistan in 2005, 80,000 people dead, 80,000 people dead, 65 people requiring acute dialysis. So when you take the toll over the past 18 years um, of earthquake-related events, you have almost 217,000 lives lost from earthquake, over 1,900 cases of dialysis, and over 1,200 people requiring acute dialysis secondary to crush syndrome. Crush syndrome occurs when the destruction of muscle releases the molecule myoglobin. Molecule myoglobin, a protein found in the muscle that is responsible for giving um, the muscle its characteristic red color, Uh, the myoglobin in muscle tissue serves as an intracellular storage site for oxygen. We know that when myoglobin is released from damaged muscle, it is capable of causing acute renal failure. Patients with CRUSH syndrome are identified by the following, prolonged entrapment, traumatic injury to muscle, and compromised circulation to the injured area. The traumatic injury to the muscle causes release of not only the myoglobin but also potassium. Once the potassium has been extricated, um, the affected limb becomes reperfused with new blood, but the old blood at elevated levels of myoglobin and potassium is washed out of the injured area and into the rest of the body. The elevated potassium can result in life-threatening cardiac arrhythmias and the free myoglobin will produce T or cola, me, cola-colored urine and will eventually result in renal failure. The key in improving outcomes in CRUSH syndrome is early and aggressive fluid resuscitation. Preferably, this early and aggressive fluid resuscitation should start while the patient is still entrapped. It is important for pre-hospital providers to be mindful that toxins are accumulated within the trapped limb during the extrication. On freeing the entrapped limb, the accumulated toxins will wash into the central circulation, similar to a bolus of toxins or poisons. Therefore, success will depend on minimizing the toxic effects of the accumulated myoglobin and potassium before the release of the limb. Resuscitation needs to occur before extrication. In fact, some authors have even advocated that the final extrication be delayed until the patient has been adequately resuscitated. And this is outlined by uh, uh, Preto and colleagues in Pre-Hospital Disaster Medicine in 1994. A delay in fluid resuscitation will result in renal failure in half of the patients, and a delay of 12 hours or more produces renal failure in almost 100% of the patients. A poorly resuscitated patient may go into cardiac arrest during extrication. Fluid resuscitation should proceed with normal saline at rates that will exceed 1 liter to 1,500 milliliters per hour. Lactate ringer should be avoided because of of the presence of potassium. Some authors have advocated adding uh, sodium bicarbonate to hypotonic saline, half-normal saline, an attempt to increase the urinary pH above 6.5 and therefore prevent intratubular deposition of myoglobin and uric acid. Furthermore, if urinary flow exceeds 20 milliliters per hour, one can add 50 milliliters of 20% mannitol, or 1 to 2 grams per kilogram per uh, day for a total of 120 grams, given at a rate of 5 grams per hour. Uh, and this may be added to each liter of infusate, so starting the patient basically on a uh, low-dose mannitol infusion. It's also felt that the addition of mannitol may decrease some of the compartmental pressures, but if somebody has elevation of their compartments of an entrapped limb, I think that I would certainly recommend surgical decompression over medical therapy uh, if somebody has compartment syndrome. Once a patient with CRUSH syndrome has been hospitalized, urinary output should uh, ideally exceed 300 milliliters per hour. Such a goal may require the intravenous infusion of up to 12 liters of fluid a day. The volume administered is generally much greater than the urine output, putting the patient obviously into a very positive fluid balance and clearly the patient's going to have significant amounts of edema due to the soft tissue damage uh, to the entrapped extremities. One should continue with this aggressive approach of fluid resuscitation until the presence of the myoglobin has um, uh, disappeared. Now, certainly when dealing with a mass casualty situation, we're not going to have the benefit often of uh, uh, obtaining the serum myoglobin or even urinalysis for that fact. Um, if you're in a situation where you think the patient has a crush syndrome and you're not dealing with facing five or 600 people with crush syndrome, uh, like some of these earthquake victims, but you're in a uh, normal routine in a hospital, somebody has uh, cola-colored urine and a mechanism that's consistent with a um, myoglobin injury, uh, I would certainly start um, a treatment for it. Another thing to consider is that a myoglobin may take some considerable amount of time to return from the lab. Uh, therefore, if you have a simple urinalysis and it shows a large amount of free hemoglobin but very few red blood cells, that would also be indicative of myoglobinuria. Now, again, it would be nice to uh, um, try to individualize your therapy as much as you can uh, and individualize it the resuscitation endpoints for a particular patient, whatever those might be. And things such as central venous pressure measurements, pulmonary artery catheter measurements, and so forth might be nice. But often in a mass casualty situation, patients are not going to be monitored closely. They're not going to be perhaps monitored. Um, by people who typically would monitor them in an intensive care unit. Now, Electrolyte abnormalities are going to be frequent in patients with crush syndrome, uh, with fatal hyperkalemia being the most important. Because many of these victims die from hyperkalemia before even reaching the hospital, empirical administration of potassium-containing solutions in the field uh, should be strictly avoided. Hence the choice for using saline in these patients and avoiding lactated ringers. Serum potassium levels should be measured at least three to four times a day, especially in the first days after a patient is admitted, and in patients with severe trauma who are at risk for hyperkalemia uh, than are patients with less severe injuries. Hypocalcemia should be treated only if symptomatic. And that's because early um, intramuscular accumulation of calcium is then followed by hypercalcemia at later stages. So said another way, what happens with the crush injury is that the the, uh, calcium will rush into the uh, tissues only to be redistributed at a later date. And if you end up chasing the calcium level, you're going to increase the total body uh, calcium level. And then as, as that subsequently washes back into the plasma, you'll be facing a situation of hypercalcemia. Now these patients may require dialysis, and nephrologists and intensive care physicians should be ready to initiate dialysis for the typical indications we would in any intensive care unit, and perhaps even prophylactically in patients who are at risk for hyperkalemia. The average requirement for dialysis in this group of patients who have renal failure secondary to myoglobin from a crush syndrome is between 13 and 18 days. And if you're involved in a disaster planning, you would need to take that such a number into consideration in providing that you have enough beds, enough solutions, enough dialysis machines and nurses to support this number of patients. Many of these patients require twice and even three daily dialysis treatments. Dialysis can be discontinued after we have return of kidney function as suggested by normalization of urinary volume in a patient with an improving sodium by uh, chemical values in the absence of fluid overload. Now, there are some operational considerations um, when uh, trying to plan for such a, quote, renal disaster, and that usually hospitals in the area of the disaster are either damaged or their infrastructure is basically um, destroyed, rendering that type of a hospital uh, non-operative. Therefore, if you're in a major metropolitan area who has suffered an earthquake or a large uh, Typically, tertiary hospitals are going to be rendered nothing more than field aid stations because they're going to lack food and, excuse me, they're going to lack things like electricity and water. In mass disasters, early treatment in the field is focused on the seriously injured who required immediate care. These are the people who have things such as tension in penetrating trauma, and traumatic brain injury. Most typical triage schemes focus on those patients who have at least a 50% survival, particularly when you're looking at uh, tens of thousands of injuries like we do with these earthquakes. Those individuals with crush injuries need to be transferred to adequately equipped and certainly functional hospitals that have dialysis facilities as well as a trauma center. Patients should receive potassium binders, such as k either given orally or rectally before they are transferred, since fatal hyperkalemia may otherwise occur during transport and essentially killing the patient en route to the definitive hospital. Often patients who are triaged as having only minor injuries or no injuries at all are essentially could be underdiagnosed and dismissed from local emergency care centers only to be admitted subsequently with severe acute renal failure or electrolyte abnormalities. And has occurred in the earthquakes in um, Marmara, bomb, and the Kashmir. Other considerations in planning on taking care of victims like this, not just the the renal emergency, but mass casualties in general, is the preparedness of the medical and the paramedical personnel. If you at all have been involved in disaster planning at your hospital or have read any of the materials um, circulated by the Department of Homeland Security, they encourage people to make a home plan, and frequently none of us do making your home plan will make you more effective as a uh, emergency care provider uh, in the event of a mass casualty or disaster like this for instance during the day on which the kobe earthquake occurred 42 to 69% of the medical administrative staff were unavailable because they themselves had been injured or had been transported to different facilities In the immediate aftermath, even staff members who manage to reach the hospital are seldom able to work effectively, owing to either shock, anxiety, and grief. For example, after the earthquake... In Lone Prairie, California, medical personnel at work felt that they were either neglecting their families, whereas those who remained at home felt that they were neglecting their patients. These drawbacks can be alleviated by careful preparation. Those individuals with crush syndrome, you need, need to look at the, the concept of source control. If somebody has like a compartment syndrome, Uh, That compartment syndrome is further damaging the muscle, resulting in release of the toxic myoglobin as well as the potassium. When we approach somebody who has an intradominal abscess and a septic shock, we would never just give them antibiotics without consideration of a laparotomy, drainage of the abscess, and perhaps resection of the gangrenous tissue responsible for the underlying condition. Treating Crush Syndrome by itself. Focusing on the myoglobinuria the hyperkalemia without consideration to the ongoing uh, damage to the muscle is only partial treatment. Fasciotomy will release the uh, muscle that is uh, under pressure and hopefully alleviate ongoing damage. Typically, fasciotomy is performed after taking... Um, uh, a pressure measurement of the intracompartmental pressures. And, and if someone has intracompartmental pressure greater than 35, we typically use this as a threshold for fasciotomy. Or even under non-emergent conditions, the pressure transducers uh, or striker monitors are often in short supply in any given hospital. Uh, you certainly can... Uh, uh, use a pressure line an arterial line to measure intracompartmental pressures. It is typically taught, uh, we teach basically any surgical resident evaluating some of the compartmentalism, but that the loss of pulses is the late finding, and we shouldn't wait for that. And I would agree. But in the event of a mass casualty occurring for hundreds of, of patients, it may be the indicator that we end up using as the uh, patient developing absence of pulses and necessitating a fasciotomy. Other symptoms would uh, would be the uh, development of paresthesias in the superficial peroneal nerve or numbness, basically um, between the first and second digits uh, of the foot. So in summary, crush syndrome or traumatic rhabdomyolysis is a common problem following earthquakes, building collapses, and cave-ins. Crush syndrome is responsible for tens of thousands of deaths following such incidences. Another example to illustrate the point that in 1978, an earthquake near Beijing, China, injured more than 350,000 persons with 242,000 deaths. More than 48,000 of these deaths were secondary to complications related to crush syndromes. Of the survivors, hundreds if not thousands of patients will require dialysis. Patients should be aggressively resuscitated with solutions not containing potassium crystalloids, typically normal saline. Aggressive resuscitation should be done prior to extrication, and some members of the literature, some contributors of the literature, would even suggest that perhaps resuscitation, excuse me, extrication, could be delayed until volume status is restored with fluid resuscitation. Following extrication, patients may develop life-threatening hyperkalemia in early. Administration of potassium binding agents, such as KXalate should be given to patients, or at least considered to be given to patients. Patients should try to maintain a brisk urine output, and may require large volumes of resuscitation to maintain adequate urine output. Manitol can be administered to assist in this urine output, and sodium bicarbonate can be administered in an attempt to alkalinize the urine. Once the blood pressure is stabilized and volume status restored, attention again is returned towards prophylaxis against hyperkalemia and the toxic effects of serum myoglobin. Alkalinization of the urine will provide some degree of protection to the kidneys. Addition of 1 amp of sodium bicarbonate and 10 grams of mannitol to each liter of fluid used during the extrication period may also help decrease the incidence of renal failure. Patients with identified crush syndrome should be evacuated to facilities capable of providing a dialysis. I hope you found this podcast interesting, and hopefully it supplements your education. Our prayers certainly go out to the families in Utah, to the miners who were trapped and, and died there, uh, also to the uh, folks in China who have lost 181 miners, and certainly to our friends in Peru dealing with the aftermath of a horrible earthquake. My name's Jeff Guy. This is the podcast Surgery ICU Rounds. My website is www.BurnDoc.com. Thank you. Have a good day.